Good morning. Wow, that was loud. Welcome if you're visiting, and welcome if you're just joining us um, on occasion as well. Where do we find ourselves this morning? You might have just worked out. We've landed right in the middle of a story here, an account of what is happening with Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about where we're up to. Thus far, the writer Matthew is telling us that Jesus is someone to pay attention to. And we see at the very start of the book, he gives us a list of his family tree to show that Jesus is special. He's of the line of King David, and so he has a claim to be called the Messiah, this one the Jewish nation were looking for to rescue them. Then we go further through the story, we find that Jesus is announced by John the Baptist, and we find that John says, here comes one greater than I, I'm not worthy to undo his Nikes, I mean his sandals. And we go further and then we see him baptised by John the Baptist and God authenticates him with a sign from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. And then it goes through some accounts, we've been running through this chapter by chapter and seeing these mighty works that Jesus has done. He's done great healings and great miracles. He's shown power over nature and over human sickness and disease and over demon possession as well. But as we've hit the chapters 11 to 13, we're finding out that not everyone loves Jesus. There's rising opposition to Jesus. Even John, we discovered, was not convinced about Jesus. John got locked up because he was too crazy, he was preaching too much and yelling in the wilderness. So he got sent to jail and he sends his disciples out and says, Jesus, did I announce the right person? Did I get it right? It looks like the program's too slow. I've said that you're the Messiah, that you're the Lamb of God, you're the one to come and rescue us. What's going on? I've heard reports of some of these miracles, but it seems to be a slow process. So even John has his doubts, and then we find that others rise up in opposition. And a name that will keep cropping up is the Pharisees. And if you're not familiar with the passage here, the Pharisees are the religious experts, the religious leaders of the day. They run the synagogue, they uh, organise the religious system and keep people following that. They were very keen on strict adherence to the rules they were given because they were quite sure if they did this well enough that God would come back to dwell with them like he had been in the past. God had left because of the way that they had behaved so they thought if we behave hard enough in the right direction God will come back and dwell with us. But today you'll notice there are some scribes popping up too. So the Pharisees are back, they're back to challenge Jesus with rising opposition and the scribes, they brought the lawyers this time, the scribes are the legal experts. The Pharisees are the religious leaders and teachers and the scribes back them up. A bit like when James and I are doing a Bible study, James always knows where the reference is, I imagine that's what it's like. Um, the scribes call out and go, that's on page 49 if you're wondering, um, when they explain something. So we arrive here in the story, Jesus has recently had someone brought to him, a man possessed and afflicted by demons. He was blind and mute, and that seems to be part of the affliction when he is demon-possessed. And Jesus heals him and cleanses him with his power. And now the Pharisees arrive, and verse 38 says, Then some Pharisees, teachers of the law, said to him. So it seems to follow along quite closely here in our narrative. And they say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, there's some speculation that perhaps a miracle is something that takes place on earth. So when Jesus casts out a demon, maybe that's not good enough because it's something that happens on earth. 
and perhaps a sign is something that comes from heaven, a bit like when Jesus was baptised and the dove came down upon him and the voice of God spoke from heaven to affirm him. Jesus doesn't actually seem to pick up on that idea here. But what we do notice is that the Pharisees, they're not impressed, it seems. They're not impressed enough with Jesus healing the man afflicted by a demon. They say, Jesus, we need something more. We need to see a sign. You need to prove yourself. And they say, teacher, that's just kind of a cultural marker of respect. They don't actually think Jesus is worth following. They're here to challenge him. Jesus, as per normal, he claps back. Um, Some of us went to Sunday school and might have thought Jesus was meek and mild all the time. Here we find out Jesus was often very direct and to the point when people were on the wrong track about who he was. Jesus responds and says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus says, you don't get to demand a sign whenever you like. I'm not here to play puppet for you and do magic tricks or call down a sign from heaven to prove who I am. I don't call for blind faith, but I am calling for faith. You can see what is happening and faith connects the dots. So Jesus here likens the sign that he will give them to that of the prophet Jonah. If you remember, Jonah was sent on a mission to preach to his worst enemies, the Ninevites. He didn't really want the job, so he kept trying to run away. Eventually, he finds himself on a ship. God sends a storm along. He loses the vote. They have a small vote to see who's at wrong. They cast their lots and pick their straws. And then Jonah eventually says, yeah, it is me. After he's been shown up already, you better throw him in the ocean, thinking that was the end of his mission. But God rescues him by way of a miraculous fish that comes and swallows him and it's here that Jesus says it's the same way Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish and so the son of man referring to himself will be three days and three nights in the heart of the fish Jesus is giving an early indication of his mission here Jesus is saying I didn't come to perform tricks on demand and it comes to show signs on demand when you want them I've come on mission from God I'm the Messiah but the way that I do this is not your expectations it's not to John the Baptist expectations he's saying my mission is to die for you my mission is to be buried for three days and three nights and my mission is to rise again that is what will vindicate me as Messiah that'll show that my stamp of approval comes from God. This is a very early sign in the book of Matthew that he's talking about his mission of death, burial and resurrection. It's interesting that Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. So he's talking about a future time when these leaders will be judged for their actions. And he says, the men of Nineveh Those people of Nineveh will judge you essentially because they have less evidence than you and yet they place faith in me and turn from their wrong ways, their evil ways, they turn to me for life. So it says, this will be condemning of you because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And we saw earlier, Jesus likes to point to what he is doing, his work as something greater 
them what they know. They know who Jonah is. They know the story very well. And Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here, talking about himself and, and his work. He gives another example. The Queen of the South, which is the Queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment and do the same. It will condemn this generation for its lack of belief. Because she was the one that travelled a great distance to come and meet with Solomon, understanding that Solomon had great wisdom to share as someone empowered by God. This was another non-Jew, another outsider, what the Bible calls a Gentile. That's me and it's probably you for the most part here today. There might be a few um, that would fit the non-Gentile category. But it's, it's all the rest of the world because God says he's going to use this nation to bring great news to the world. He's going to bring great joy. He's going to bring rescue to the nations through this people group. And so we have two examples of those that, according to the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they shouldn't have believed because they didn't have enough evidence. So they condemned them because the evidence they had was sufficient for them to place faith in Jesus or faith in the message of God. But the Pharisees are sceptical. Sceptical for the sake of scepticism. They want to test Jesus. They want to make him reprove himself. But Jesus says no. No sign is given to the sceptics. Not just for the sake of scepticism. And here we, seem, here we see the first of our themes emerge, that a callous response to Jesus is a dangerous response. A callous response to Jesus is a dangerous response. Uh, lots of people around us have a callous response to Jesus and the evidence that's in front of them. Uh, YouTube is a, ho a home to a lot of experts. I don't know if you're on there, you can find people that know lots of things about lots of things, depending on what you like to do. Occasionally, YouTube will even recommend an expert to you you didn't know you were interested in and you watch anyway. Um, it might be, for me, I don't know why, but it's like handmade Japanese wood joints and I don't make anything out of wood. And then occasionally I go, that looks interesting, I better watch that. But one thing that YouTube is home to as well is a lot of atheist experts. And there's one popular atheist with his own channel. He's not convinced by any of the evidence given to him. And he gets uh, essentially paid to debate um, other people for his channel. And he's not convinced of the evidence presented to him. He says, that doesn't do it for me. And it's a sceptical position because... He doesn't offer any alternative explanations to the data that's presented to him. He just is sceptical. He says, that doesn't go far enough for me. And so he's given things like the fine-tuning of the universe argument, where the fundamental constants that govern everything in our universe, from the stars and the planets right down to subatomic particles, are very finely tuned. And if any of these constants change a hair's breadth, the number set that these things are tuned to is massive. And if these change just a hair's breadth, the universe is not conducive to life. It's hostile to life. And there are numerous sets of these numbers. <coughs> He's not convinced by that. He doesn't offer any real alternatives. He might punt to a multiverse, but there's no evidence for a multiverse. It's a good theory, perhaps. There's no way to test the multiverse, and it doesn't reduce the problem 
where a multiverse is also complex and finely tuned. Then you have to come up with a multiverse generator, which I assume would also have to be finely tuned for it to produce enough universes for us to reach one that has enough of the conditions for life. So as an answer to anything, he's just sceptical. He says, no, that doesn't do it for me. That doesn't point to a design or a God with intent. And he's also presented arguments for the resurrection. He said, how does a group of the people around Jesus, his disciples, his followers, how does this group of fishermen, this group of tax collectors who are very unpopular, how does this group of uneducated people start a movement where they claim on Easter Sunday that Jesus is risen? We have seen the risen Jesus. And there are many, many people that see the risen Jesus. At one point, there is 500 at a time. And they claim to have seen the risen Jesus. So it cannot be a hallucination, because we know we don't hallucinate en masse. How do we explain the emergence of Christianity in a culture that is so hostile to this idea of one God? When the Roman gods have a pantheon of gods and you must acknowledge them or be put to death. There were no megachurch pastors at this point. You didn't get into religion for money. You believed because you trusted Jesus was the king, that Jesus was the Messiah that could rescue them and that his power extended beyond the grave so you weren't worried about the emperors that were put to death by gruesome and grisly means. But our YouTube sceptic doesn't really come up with an alternative to that. He just says, that's not enough for me. I'm just sceptical. I need more of a sign. And when he's pressed in some of these debates on what would be a sufficient sign, he says, I don't know. I would know it if I saw it, but I don't currently know what it is. And um, his follow-up line is something along the lines of, if there's a God, he should know what would convince me, and then he can send it to me. Sounds a little bit like our story today, doesn't it? Our account today of the Pharisees. We've seen what you've been doing, Jesus. We've been following you along from a distance and accusing you of blasphemy and working for the devil. But you haven't convinced us. We need more. I don't know what will convince us, but you've got to give us a sign. You've got to give us something a little more convincing than what you're doing. They're sceptical for scepticism's sake. Jesus, at this point, after once again infuriating them, he says, I'm... My work is greater than that of Solomon, this wise person. My work is greater than that of Jonah. Thank you, I've got some assistance, that's why I married her. Um, greater than Jonah as well. But Jesus now launches out into a teaching moment with a bit of a story, as he's wont to do, with real truth in it. In verse 43, Jesus goes straight into saying, Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. So Jesus is talking to assume knowledge here. He says, you know, when you've seen me cast out demons, you saw it earlier in this same chapter of this account. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places and it, it's seeking rest. And there's reference to this in the Old Testament, places like Isaiah about unclean spirits wandering around the dry and arid places. So Jesus is appealing to their knowledge of what they have. 
And he says, it seeks rest, but doesn't find it. This is interesting because this links right back to what Jesus says at the end of chapter 11. Do you remember what he said? He said, those people that are like children, those that are humble and will accept the signs that I give them, they understand who I am. He says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus uses a ploughing metaphor here. He says, join me, you need to be in relationship with me, and that will lead to rest. What does it lead to rest for? It leads to rest for your soul. Soul rest, not body rest, not mind rest, soul rest. Not body rest, not mind rest, soul rest. Do you know why that is? Because you're not a body with a mind and a soul. Because if one of us lost a limb, tragically, we would still consider that one fully human, wouldn't we? Because having a body is part of being fully human, but you are not a body, you are more than a body. You are not a mind with a body and a soul, because if you lost your mind through a tragic accident or the years of time passing by, you would still be fully human and you should be treated in that way. But you are a soul with a body and mind. Because if you lose your soul, there is no one fully human there. The soul is your essence, it's your indivisible part, it's your life force that God has granted to you. We don't fully understand it, but we are more than body and mind. And if it is indivisible, you can't lose part of your soul. In popular vernacular, we sell our soul to the devil, he gets the whole thing all at once, because we understand that without the soul, without the body and without the mind, we're not fully human. Isn't it interesting that we often try and solve soul problems by attending to the body? You believe, perhaps, that your dream beach location with hammock and coconut drink in hand, soothing ukulele music, you think that'll bring an ease to you, that'll bring rest, things will be right. But you know, deep in the back of your mind, as soon as you get back on the plane, with Jetstar, they've lost your baggage, you don't know where it's gone, there's no rest there. You're sitting next to a crying toddler, probably one of mine, apologies. <laughs> the dad has gone to give the baby a drink and not realise that the air pressure in the cabin forces the water out at a rapid rate. That was also me and I didn't own up, I apologise. Very embarrassing. There's no rest there, is there? As soon as you're back on the plane, you've lost your rest. Because the body is not the solution to soul rest. We can do the same with our mind. We think, maybe if I go on a new spree of learning or a spree of discipline, I'll keep my room tidy. Beck knows I'm talking to someone else here because I haven't uttered that lately. 
But we think, perhaps if I get my mind more orderly, this will give me rest. I'll feel like everything's in its place and there's a place for everything. But it's not the case because we need soul rest. Jesus says, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. And interestingly, <coughs> this unclean spirit here is fine, seeking rest, seeking, searching, and doesn't find rest. Jesus is tying into this idea of rest yet again. I'm going to leave this up here. Apologies for the aesthetic people watching on YouTube. But the, the demon seeks rest, and Jesus is tying into this theme of rest yet again. You need soul rest. You need rest for your soul. Food won't help you. Holidays won't help you. Meditation won't help you. Well, actually, it will for a short time. Self-help helps for a little while. That's what we discover in verse 44. Self-help helps for a little while. Verse 44 says, Then it, the unclean spirit, says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. This person was previously afflicted by an unclean spirit, and his life was a mess. But when the unclean spirit departs into the desert places to try and find rest, it says, I will go back. What does it find? It finds self-improvement. It finds a measure of success. So your holiday will help you for a short time. Your meditation kick will help you for a time. A Tony Robbins self-help conference will improve your productivity and self-image for a short time. Do you remember in the time we don't like to talk about, when we're all locked down, do you remember what the busiest shop was? It was either the toilet paper aisle, or funnily enough, it was Bunnings. Because everyone thought, I'm not staying at home, this is boring. If I'm staying at home, I'm going to do a job here, I'm going to get something done. I'm going to be productive, life will be better when my bathroom has full height tiling. It's what I need, that'll give me rest as I take my time. So Bunnings aisles were also chockers. Fortunately, pandemics apparently don't spread in Bunnings, so it was okay. You could cram in there as much as you liked, it appeared. The car parks are full, the aisles are full, no sausage sizzle, so we're safe, it's okay. But many people got excited and they started home renovations. And what they found out is that self-help helps for a while because they bought all the right tools, very fancy tools, because that helps you, that gives you great skill, apparently. But what they discovered when they got home, they started pulling those tiles off the wall and scraping the grout off and accidentally knocking holes in the gyp rock and tripping over the toilet and knocking it out off of its plumbing. They're now in a place that is much worse than when they started. And there are many reports of people having to call experts and experts turning them down because they don't know what to do either. They're like, I don't know what you've done there. We've never seen that particular fountain of water coming out of the cistern. We're not familiar with that. You've got your own unique way of doing home renos. So for a while, the excitement of self-improvement was great, but it led to a worse place. And that's what Jesus points to here. He says in verse 45, that same unclean spirit goes to return, but it takes with it seven other spirits. That's sort of a number of completion here, this idea of seven being, there's a full measure of uncleanness coming back, of wickedness. And these spirits are more wicked than itself and they go in and they live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Self-help helps for a while, 
but things take a dramatic turn for the worse in the long run. Jesus says, this is the same way it will be for this generation. He says, future tense, at the moment you think your self-help is working. You think your trajectory of law-keeping, making sure everyone else is keeping these same laws, making extra laws so you don't break the important laws that God has given. You think that will be your path to improvement, your path to relationship and fulfilment with God. That's what the Pharisees thought, these experts. Jesus says, there will be a time when this will come back to you, it'll be much, much worse. This will not end well. Self-help helps for a while, but it leaves us empty. That's a problem because we're designed to be filled. Making yourself clean but empty is an invitation to be filled with greater evil, according to Jesus. For those that place faith in Jesus and ask to be reborn from above, and be given His Spirit, we understand we're designed to be filled. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. We're designed to be filled. Ephesians 5, 18 says, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. We're designed to be filled. Acts 13.52 records the early church gathering together. What happened? And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I like that. Filled with joy. In a time when they faced great opposition from the Roman government for their meetings in a time when they were poor and perhaps lost their jobs for not being in the popular circles. They were designed to be filled, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, which brought them great joy. As John writes to us in chapter 3 of his Gospel, God sent his Son so that we might believe in him and have life, and have life eternal, so that anyone who believes in him won't perish and he explains that to the religious leader Nicodemus and he says you need to be born from above you need to be born again you need to experience rebirth because self-help only helps for a while Jesus calls us to trust in his work something that is greater than Solomon something that is greater than Jonah just remember that Self-help helps for a while, and this applies to the idea of meditation. Meditation is getting more and more popular at the moment. It has been on a a rising path of popularity for some time. And I was reading a bit about it, and I was getting quite confused, because I'm not great with paradoxes. But your goal in meditation is goallessness. I haven't worked out how to do that yet, because it sounded like a goal. But I have to embrace the paradox. I have to have the goal of goallessness. Part of the call is to become detached from desire. I must observe my thoughts in a non-judging way. I must let them pass by. 
I must not critique them, I must not judge them. I just must be mindful and observe. I think meditation taps into a good idea, has good intentions. It sees life as more than bodily desires. It sees there is indeed a time to calm the mind. However, this leads to an emptying of judgment. This leads to an emptying of rationale. This leads to purely observation. I'll put it to you that this is a cleaning but also an emptying. So you might see benefits from meditation for a short while. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, in the context where God gives us His Spirit, this idea of new birth, so that we may know spiritual things, we might know God, it says in verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things. The spiritual person is able to understand the things of God because he has received the Spirit of God. We are now His. However, those that wrote the Psalms don't throw out meditation, but they do have a different spin on meditation. Christian meditation is the mind settled on God. Christian meditation is the mind that thinks God's thoughts with him. If you read through the Psalms, you're going to come across verses like Psalm 1 verse 2, which is saying, Blessed is the one, following on for verse 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Who meditates on his law day and night. This is the one who loves to dwell and steady his mind on God's ways. Psalm 143 verse 5 says, I remember the days of long ago, I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. Meditation on God's works. It's not an emptying. It's a joy that comes from observing what God has done. That might be observing nature, listening to a waterfall but it is a mind centred and rested on God. Psalm 119, 148 says, My eyes stay open through the watches of the night, possibly a parent, that I may meditate on your promises. No, the real reason is that I may meditate on God's word, on his promises. This is rest for the soul. Psalm, Psalm 19 and verse 14 says, May the these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. So he's currently meditating. May this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So here we see the cleansing is good, but we must be filled. Jesus says to this generation, your self-help will only help for a while and then things will end up much worse. More evil will return. So Jesus is challenging us to join him in his rest where he has done the work. This applies to us today. And I think it applies if we're here, you know, first, second, third or fourth time and we're investigating these claims of Jesus and we're quite new to it. What this passage today tells us, if we're in that camp, is that 
Skepticism for skepticism's sake is dangerous because a calloused response is a dangerous response. Listen to your heart's prompting to investigate Jesus further. It also says you need soul rest. You need rest for your soul. You may be trying to fix your body and fix your mind, which will bring short-term benefits, but ultimately you need rest for your soul. You need to find peace with God that assures you that even death is no barrier for God. He will give you eternal life. Some of you have been coming here a long time and you call yourself a disciple or student of Jesus. You too need soul rest. We must guard against the danger of empty and dry religion where we try and do things by self-effort by just moralising and saying, if I have a list of things I don't do, surely I'll end up better off. When Jesus calls us to rest and says, take my yoke, take my, let me take the heavy burden of ploughing in life to find rest for your souls, he's calling you into relationship. There's a famous YouTube video that went around a few years ago and said, uh, relationship, not religion. just want to clarify, it's actually both. James tells us what pure and undefiled religion is. It's to serve the widows and the needy as we love God. So it's both relationship and religion. And if we do one or the other, we're going to get it wrong. Jesus calls us into relationship and that is where we find rest. As we allow Jesus to do the heavy lifting, Jesus to empower us. We allow us to be cleaned by God and filled with his spirit. That means when we pray, we pray for the sake of enjoying God's presence. We don't just come with the shopping list of things we'd like God to do for us. We pray for the sake of enjoying God's presence. We read the Bible not to get smarter and smarter, so we can have deeper and deeper debate at church over coffee. We read the Bible to know the one who loves us, who said that he gave himself for us. We don't live in a way to prove ourselves so we look a bit better than the neighbours, I'm failing in that regard. But we don't live in a way that reflects our goodness in front of our neighbours. We live in a way that reflects our identity as children of God, ones loved, ones secure in what He has done for us. So the question for us all is, are we in a callous state? Have we fallen into a callous state this morning? Are we still soft to the appeal of Jesus to consider Him as the King? the one who can rescue us from the ails of body, mind and soul. Are you chasing self-help as a means to rest for your soul? This morning, Jesus asks, how will you respond to me? I'll ask the band to come now.